podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes, you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca is looking at what happened before Sri Lanka became a thing in world cricket. For many of us, Sri Lanka were always there, but they are actually still a very new side. And to explain their history, we got on someone who has just written a book on them. My name is Nicholas Brooks, and I am the author of An Island's Eleven. We talk about chair rental, Danish cricket, boycotting Israel, the 1975 World Cup, Tomo, the 1979 World Cup, and what the future might have been if Sri Lanka had not beaten India. Eventually, we'll explain how Israel almost derailed Sri Lanka's chance to win the 96 World Cup, although I've now written about that a lot. But I want to go back to the start of Sri Lanka cricket. It's not something that I've covered massively, that period, sort of the 10 years before they get test status. And it was something I found really, really interesting in your book. So by the early 1970s, it's quite clear that this is a team coming together, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing to say, Jared, is at the start of the 1970s, Sri Lanka is still kind of reeling from this failed or cancelled tour to England in 1968, which was seen as an audition or a springboard for test status. It didn't end up happening, which put them back. But you're right to say things are coming together at the start of the 70s. I mean, they've won a test match in Ahmedabad against India in 65. They've won a limited overs match against England by this point. And the team's looking settled with this batting core of Hein, Tessera, Tenekun, Fernando being bolstered by two new superstar batsmen in Dulit Mendes and Bandula Warnapura. So there's definitely a sense of Sri Lanka, I think, as kind of a team on the charge at the start of the 1970s, uh, or at least for those who are paying sort of really close attention. Which was probably no one outside of Sri Lanka at that point. Yeah, exactly. Which was probably no one except for maybe a couple of people in Tamil Nadu who'd seen them kind of playing year on year. And I think it was 74, they play India in an unofficial test and they have the better of India in that game. I think Gavaska plays like it's a fairly strong Indian team. And not long after that, it feels like there's an 11 that's pushing through, even if the rest of the world hasn't quite noticed at that point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's three series, I think, in the lead up to the World Cup in 75 against India, Pakistan and the West Indies. And Sri Lanka do really well in all of them. I think there was Tenakun, who's the captain, scores back-to-back hundreds in two tests against India. And then Sri Lanka come pretty close to winning an unofficial test in Pakistan. I think they set something like 175 for victory and they end up sort of falling 15 short. And then again, they get the better of the great West Indies team at the Oval in Borella, I think. Tony Opatha gets, you know, Lloyd, Richards and a couple of the other top order players all in single figures as West Indies are sort of reduced to 40 to 5. So definitely there's a sense that things are going right. And whereas in the past Sri Lanka's form had kind of fluctuated wildly, I think you're starting to see a period of consistent results. It's worth pointing out at this point that the Sri Lankan cricket board has very little money. I can't remember which game it was, but there's a good story in your book about playing in a game and they fall behind. 
And the Sri Lankan board decide that they're not going to do very well. So they take away the seating so they can get a refund on the costs. You don't do that if you're traveling well financially, do you? No, you don't. And it's one. It's something that came up a couple of times. I mean, here, I think it was the India test where the board were basically, we're not going to last four days. So we'll just um, arrange chairs for three days. And then I think 10 years later, when they first went to Australia, the Australian board didn't bother to print tickets for day five because they were so confident that Sri Lanka were just going to get blown away. And, it, you know, it's something that the players remember. So it's obviously something that kind of spurred people on, that wanting to prove them wrong. <laughs> and it was Tenakun, you said before, where he was the captain, is that right? Was he sort of the driving force in that sort of 75-era team? Yeah, he was the captain, Jared. But it was a strange situation because Michael Tessera was the captain through the 60s and really Sri Lankan's best batsman through the 1960s. And he is still kind of on the scene, but he can play less cricket because of his work commitments. So I think up until probably 1973, 1974, there are maybe questions about whether Tessera is going to be sort of plunged back into the captaincy for the World Cup. But I think that Tenakun, who's maybe not a sort of natural leader in the way Tessera was, he's a pretty quiet, sort of shy guy. I think through the force of his run scoring and his action across 1974, he cements himself as the leader of this group. And he scored, I mean, I think in 1974, he reached a thousand runs in unofficial tests at an average over 40. And considering kind of, you know, the sparsity of cricket, the amateurism of the Sri Lankan scene, I think that's a really incredible achievement that kind of marked him out as a world-class player. The other interesting thing I saw, which it kind of plays back to what we talk about with Associate Nations now, in the first four months of 1974, they played 13 first-class games, which is a remarkable amount of games. I think they played 16 in the five-year stretch from 1968 to the of uh, 1972, right? So it's not that there was a big talent jump or, you know, they suddenly had a golden generation or anything like that. It's literally they were producing cricketers. They just didn't have a system to be able to develop them against the better players, right? Yeah, I think that's totally the case. And I mean, I imagine it's something that all associate nations and countries coming through struggle with is that when you've got these huge chasms in the calendar and your own sort of domestic cricket scene is not of the standard that, you know, is required, I guess, to get improved players. It's really, really hard. And I think you see that, that Sri Lanka play all these games in a run in 1974 and suddenly start to perform really well. Whereas previously, you know, it had been 14 months in between a sort of three-day match and then you've got nothing. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point to make, Jared, that playing regular cricket makes a massive difference. And as soon as Sri Lanka got test dates in the 80s and, you know, you've got to test sort of every few weeks, you see, again, big leaps and guys um, starting to make big scores much more consistently. So 1975 World Cup, that's obviously sort of the first time that Sri Lanka's a major nation. We, You know, your book's got some great history in it. We know that Sri Lanka, one of the reasons that they sort of had the ability to develop in a way that maybe Malaysian or Hong Kong cricket didn't was the fact that Australia and England would stop over and they could test themselves against better teams as far as also having a better structure. The 1975 World Cup is the Sri Lankan team coming out of Sri Lanka, right? And coming into major cricket. I mean, essentially, in some ways, it was the first time we had international <laughs> tournaments since 1911 anyway, except for the Women's World Cup a couple of years earlier. But for those players... We're not talking about players who were well-traveled or first-class veterans getting pushed up to a World Cup, are we? We're really talking about guys quite often on their first trip outside of Asia. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that really struck me, Jared, was when I, I managed to speak to a lot of the 75 squad. And for most of these guys, it was their first trip 
beyond Asia. And, you know, just seeing London, the scale of a huge city, I think Colombo then was still quite small. And so, I mean, for a lot of the players, it was a shock and, you know, a real experience and an adventure. I mean, I think that talking to the guys now, kind of almost 50 years later, that sense of camaraderie and bond and of a family feel is still really strong. And I think those guys had a great time on the 75 trip. I think it was actually also a really, really strong squad. Looking back at it on paper, I think it was probably stronger than the squad that went and won a game against India in 79. And so I do feel as though if that team had had slightly better preparation and planning and maybe a little better structure around them, that they could have done some real damage at that 75 World Cup. Let's talk about that for a minute. So according to your book, it works almost exactly the same way as it does now, which is that the teams go out and if you want to get out there early, you pay your own way, right? So you have to look after yourself. And then at a certain date, the World Cup organization helps you with hotels and, and per diems, although it might not have been per diems in 1975, Nick, if we're being honest, but let's hope that they had per diems. But that bit beforehand, could you tell me about the accommodation that the Sri Lankan players had available to them? Yeah, so the board had laid on some digs called the Salon Student Centre. Sounds great. Somewhere in West London, which I think was demolished pretty soon after. And because, I mean, if you'll excuse my language, Jared, all I can say about this place is that it sounds like a total shithole. I mean, I think there was no heating or hot water. The rooms were like dungeons. The blankets were threadbare. I think Dennis Chanmagam was... um in the bathroom brushing his teeth when a bit of the ceiling collapsed on his head. Um, I think I've stayed in this place, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the couple of good things that it had going for it was there was a TV, which was a device that hadn't yet reached Sri Lanka. So the squad sat around watching TV on the evening, although I think it started leaking onto the TV. So they had to put a kind of bucket above it to stop the set getting wet. And apparently it served really good rice and curry, which was actually kind of important because the board couldn't budget for meals. So they had sent the squad to kind of endless functions around London and they were going and, you know, watching rubbish cricket matches or having to sort of stand around just to get a bit of food. So the fact that the student centre did decent food was great. But I think, yeah, though Sri Lanka went a few weeks ahead and they probably didn't plan that the best because they were playing teams like Finchley or St. Ives, you know, small club sides, which probably weren't the best preparation for um, Lillian Thompson. Yes. So the first game in the 75 World Cup is against the West Indies. Could you take us through how bad that went for them? Yeah, I think uh, they go up to Old Trafford and, you know, it's a kind of typical English early summer day, lots of heavy cloud and gloom. Tenekun lost the toss to Lloyd and Sri Lanka were just totally blown away. I think it, it was Bernard Julian who was kind of um, getting swing and seam and the batsman had never seen anything like it. And... They were done, I think, probably for just over a hundred. Oh no, they were done for 86, in fact. I'm just seeing, looking at my notes, so they didn't make a hundred. The West Indies knocked those off in no time. And then just as the game was finishing, a kind of busload of Sri Lankan fans turned up. So they faced the indignity of having to play another match to fill up the afternoon, which was a T20 game. They did a little bit better in that, but they lost again. <laughs> I'm trying to think if that's ever happened at a World Cup before. I know that's happened in bilateral games, but I'm trying to think if there's ever been a case in a World Cup where teams have played two games in the one day because the team was embarrassing. So I know it was the first World Cup, and it does tell you how amateur it was. And, you know, you go back and you read about the women and the men 
And you do realise that these things barely existed. It's not the World Cup as we see it today. But even so, to think, we'll just play another game at the end because that one didn't go particularly well. I mean, that's got to be incredibly embarrassing considering it's Sri Lanka's first ever game. Yeah, their kind of introduction to the world in a sense. You know, their first outing on a global scale and it's so bad that they have to do it all over again in the afternoon. And just on a side note, if anyone is listening who was on that bus in 1975, I've always wanted to... um, find someone because I've heard a lot about it from the players but nothing from any fans so if anyone's out there who was around in 1975 do get in touch <laughs> a second game is against Australia Australia make 325 it was 60 overs that tournament I think it was right? 60 overs yeah so 325 is still a lot for a one day game of that era I mean we haven't talked about it much but Sri Lanka was a batting side compared to probably most of the more struggling sides, and that was certainly their key. But Australia making 325 against them. But it's a really interesting time in Australian cricket because the Australian team was getting a lot of flack and bad PR from the English press for being bullies because of Tomo and Lily. This is peak Tomo before he did his shoulder. Probably peak Lily in pace too, I would have thought, around that period. I'm trying to remember the 75 World Cup, but it was before he had his first breakdown as well. Although maybe it's not. Maybe it was just after he came back. But Australia make 325, and Sri Lanka gets 150 for two before uh, Chapelli basically gets sick and tired of bowling nice to them, and he lets Tomo be Tomo, I suppose is the best way of putting it. Yeah, I think um, Chapelli tired of the PR exercise of pitching it up and said, let's see how they play off the back foot. Dalit Mendis, who I'm sure some of the older listeners might remember, was probably one of the most fearless batsmen Sri Lanka produced, a kind of prototypical Sri Lankan batter, but he was only about five foot two, five foot three, I think. So Tomo bowled him a short one, which he tried to hook and it was a fresh air swipe. Then the next ball, the same kind of thing happened, but it cut back off the pitch and cracked Mendes straight in the forehead. And the ball went racing off to the cover boundary. Mendes was felled and had to be carried off and taken to hospital. And then shortly after, Sunil Wetamuni, who was the batsman at the other end, got a couple on the heel of his foot, which um, sent him to hospital too. So very quickly, Sri Lanka's two set batters were gone, but they didn't wilt to Sarah and Tenakun came in. And I think they made their way up to kind of 285, 287, somewhere around there, which was um, a record for side batting second, I think, through to 1983. So they put up a pretty damn good fight in that game and I think opened a lot of people's eyes. Yeah, I mean, they went from two down to two players up in, in hospital and still, like 276 was... Again, like we're talking about what, what did Australia make 325. So 276 on its own against Australia, even if they were bowling slightly within themselves for a little while waiting for Sri Lanka to collapse, is still that's a, an incredible score, isn't it? It's a really good score. And then you think that, I mean, you had two batters who were really going well, who were just dislodged in the sort of middle of that inning. So maybe could they have made a few more? I mean, there are a couple of other issues surrounding this game. David Hine, who was the best fielder in the team by a long shot, was suspended for breaking curfew the night before. And I mean, Sri Lanka at this stage weren't a good fielding side. So whether him being in the covers would have saved, I don't know, 10 or 15 runs, who knows. And the other thing is that Tony Opatha, who was by far and away the most economical bowler on the day, only ended up bowling nine of his 12 due to a kind of mix-up. So, I mean, you wonder whether Sri Lanka might have been able to sort of take 25, 30 off that Aussie total and get a few more themselves. <laughs> I don't know. It's, they weren't a million miles away. Yeah, that is very fair. Final game of that tournament, they play against Pakistan. I'd say that it's fair to say that the Australia game is the highlight. The Pakistan game doesn't go as well. 
Yeah, I think probably the Pakistan game is even more disappointing than the West Indies game in a way because, I mean, these two know each other and they've played a fair bit of cricket against each other. And by this stage, you know, you think the Sri Lankan players should be sort of acclimatized to English conditions, but they just get blown out. Zahir Abbas plays a gem of an innings and I think Sri Lanka lose by something like 200. So they're done in the groups, but I think it's probably fair to say, I mean, you'd have a better sense of this than me, Jared, that Pakistan, West Indies and Australia were the three best sides in the tournament. Yeah, I suppose it's so hard to work out who was good and who wasn't because I just had a look at Lily, his one-day form. He plays in 72. He plays a bunch of one-days. Then he plays in 75. You don't know who was a good team and who just had a couple of good games? Yeah, sure. (laughs) You know, in some ways, Sri Lanka probably prepared for this more than some of the major teams did, right? A little bit like the early um, T20 World Cup where you turn up, but you look at Australia on paper and Pakistan were probably, and West Indies were all assembling I mean, West Indies wasn't the West Indies we know they were going to become. They become that really in the next year, year and a half. But the basic players are available to them. I think if Pakistan had played more one-day cricket, I think they would have been a lot better at it. So in some ways, they maybe got the harder draw. Because Sri Lanka had beaten England in a one-day before. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, they'd beaten England in 69, I think, their first real taste of one-day cricket or limited overs cricket. So, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think if, if they'd had a slightly different draw, I wonder where they would have gone in that. The, the interesting thing is, because they do get smashed, and the Australia game doesn't really... It was Australia-Sri Lanka game. It didn't get this sort of media coverage that it would now, right? Certainly, you know, the way that that World Cup was covered was really odd from a media perspective and everything else. But what I find really interesting is that so little was known about Sri Lankan cricket that the Denmark and Holland, who both believed they should have been in the World Cup ahead of Sri Lanka, made such a fuss that it kind of changes the way that World Cups are chosen and World Cups are are sorted after that, right? And that's because no one really knew, like in in Denmark and Holland, they just thought they were on the same level or even better than Sri Lanka because there was no real way to test any of that sort of stuff in those days. Yeah. And I think just as a more general point, it's another bit of adversity that Sri Lanka faced was kind of like, you know, all the big nations were thinking they were rubbish and all the little nations were thinking they were better than them. I think when they went to Bangladesh for the first time, Bangladesh expected to beat them. But yeah, so Denmark and Holland were really up in arms that they had been passed over for Sri Lanka. Dusty Miller, who was Sri Lanka's ICC rep, not even a member of the board, used his own money to arrange this post-World Cup tour to play Holland in The Hague. And then they, they go up to Denmark and they managed to win both games and really kind of cement their status as the best of the rest, I guess. They played East Africa in that one as well? Was yeah, they the played time? East Africa at Taunton too. And I think that was another win at Delip 100, which kind of um, rescued them. So yeah, so the other three, I guess, kind of contenders who are knocking around, they beat them all in quick succession and make a bit of a statement doing so. I think the racism angle is probably not talked about enough, partly because we don't have minutes to the ICC meetings and we don't know how much. But we do know that when Pakistan were getting their test status, I think there was a push for Canada to get test status because essentially the Western countries wanted, well, if you're going to have an Asian country, we need a Western country. And I think that there was a part of that as well that, you know, Holland and Denmark could have capitalized on. I know it sounds weird now thinking back, but it is possible that either Holland or Denmark could have been made a test playing nation in the 70s themselves. I don't think they were that close, but there was a broader conversation and Canada were involved in it as well. And so it's a really interesting time. And it really isn't to that 1979 World Cup qualifying event that things change. But just before we get to that, between 75 World Cup and 79 World Cup, what's Sri Lankan cricket like in that period? 
I think this is another really, really seminal period for Sri Lankan cricket. I think the 75 World Cup kind of galvanizes the board and they arrange a lot of cricket for just after. I think November 75, they go to India and David Hine is a whisker away from twin centuries against a great attack containing, you know, Bedi, Chandrasekhar and Prasanna. So I think that's another moment which shows, you know, that uh, Sri Lankan players are really sort of developing and that there's a lot of class in Sri Lanka. Then in 76, I think, they win a couple of 40-over games against Pakistan and win a sort of another unofficial test against Pakistan. And then I think there's also a limited overs win over the West Indies between 75 and 79. So it's definitely a period of growth for Sri Lanka. They lose a couple of players because the trend is that once you hit 30, you kind of retire because you've got to make some money. Mm. But then David Hines, probably the big loss in that period. And Roy Dias comes in as a kind of ready-made replacement, just ready to slide into that middle order. So it's another real period of growth between 75 and 79. And I think three or four of the guys kind of make themselves regulars in the Lancashire League. So you're in a position going into 79, I think, where although it's a fairly green squad that's picked, the players who have experience are in a much better position to thrive than they were the first time around. So you look at that qualifying event, and as you know, Nick, I've now spent a lot of time studying the qualifying event. Um, <laughs> it was three groups of five, is that right? So 15 teams, I yeah, think, all together. Right. Yeah, and so the four teams are going through the semifinals. So the three winners of their group and then the lucky loser. There's a lot of very average associate teams at that time, you know, cricket. I don't think... It's not like there was a proper system of moving teams up. So I think if you asked to be in the qualifying event, you could almost sneak your way in if you were lucky enough. It's clear, just looking at the results, that the two best teams are Denmark and Sri Lanka, and not by a little bit, that they are by far and away the two best teams in that tournament. They obviously should meet each other in the final. What is really interesting is that they don't meet each other in the final, and they don't do that because the Sri Lankan government says that they are not allowed to play against Israel. So they boycotted that game, I'm assuming based on political tensions at the time, something about the Israeli government and Palestine. I would guess I, that's one thing I never really looked into. Yeah, I believe it was political tension. I did look into it, Jared, but I actually couldn't really find too much about it. And everyone who I asked who was around at the time had kind of forgotten. They just remembered the headline that this boycott kind of happened at the last minute. And really it throws Sri Lanka's whole tournament and the potential World Cup into turmoil because, I mean, the ICC's first instinct is to kick them out. I think Arthur Pinto, who's the rep at that point, has a good relationship with DB Carr and then he manages to keep Sri Lanka in the tournament. But then the game against Wales is washed out. So the points from that are split. So Sri Lanka are basically left in this kind of crazy position where they almost don't make it out the group stage of the ICC trophy. And if that was the case, they don't qualify for the World Cup, they don't beat India, and they don't get test status. Yeah, the whole thing, it's a remarkable story, and we won't go into it too much because, as you know, I've done it in a, in a video, so if anyone wants to go and have a look at it, it really is a remarkable story from two sides. One is the Denmark angle, which is Denmark probably should have qualified for that World Cup. Had they qualified for that World Cup, that might have made a big difference to Danish cricket, which was really strong. It may, I don't think they were as strong as Sri Lanka, but I think those two teams were clearly the best two teams at that point. Instead, Canada end up going through. Canada never really has it, a great moment well, outside of John Davison in the 2003 World Cup, but that's for another podcast. It never has a great World Cup moment, and you know, cricket in Canada is still sort of stuttering along, whereas 
Danish cricket was probably stronger in that period than cricket's ever been in Canada, arguably, maybe other than the old days. And then you've got, you know, as you said, the second game against Wales is washed out. They do get through on run rate. I just want to throw a hypothetical to you. I think Sri Lankan cricket was moving far enough forward that if they don't qualify for that 79 World Cup, it's not the end of the world. How far do you think it sets them back, though, if they don't get to the 79 World Cup? It's tough to say, really, Jared, because, I mean, what I noticed was that after the 79 World Cup, between that and test status, they pretty much, again, have this drought where they don't have a series until, like, the start of 1981. So I'm sure that even without the India result, Sri Lanka would have gotten test status at some point in the 80s because I think that they were getting to be undeniable. But how much it would have pegged them back, it's hard to say whether they would have got it in the mid-80s and then how that knocks on to them winning the World Cup in 96. I mean, it's one of those impossible scenarios to tell, but I think that everything fell into place kind of serendipitously, didn't it? Because, <laughs> mm. I mean, you, you look at Zimbabwe... My guess is that Sri Lanka is going to get test status probably at the very latest by when Zimbabwe do, so the early 90s, right? And you would think that by the late 80s, they probably would qualify quite easily for the 83 World Cup and maybe the 87 World Cup, right? And so they have plenty of chances to do that. But when you look at how quickly they went from 79 World Cup to winning the World Cup in 96, I just can't see how that happens. They, don't, they wouldn't have played enough cricket for their players to develop, for their style of cricket to develop. We now know what the, that sort of Sri Lankan attacking batting style is, that sort of combination of taking risks, but in a sort of sensible, almost logical way compared to some other attacking batting that people do around the world. We still see it with their team. Let's just go back to the 79 World Cup, though. They lose the first game against New Zealand? Yeah, they lose the first game against New Zealand. I think it's kind of a classic Sri Lankan collapse, one of these which we saw a lot in the early days. I think they were 107 for two and they fell to 189 all out. So it was disappointing. I think they weren't sort of a million miles away from winning that game. And then they get a washout against West Indies, which I think the West Indies were a far better team in the 79 World Cup than they probably were in the 75, only because by that stage they'd started to play a lot more cricket and were working it out themselves. So that's Sri Lanka's first points, isn't it, in a World Cup? And I think a very happy point, I think Bandula Warnapura, who was captain by that point, had been um, hospitalised by, I believe it was Sylvester Clark when they came to Sri Lanka the year before. So um he was telling me that he was terrified going into toss and the West Indians were kind of giggling, looking at him, saying that's the guy who got hit last year. Uh, so he was happy to shake hands and call it a draw. <laughs> the next game is against India. Take us through that. I mean, it's such a historically important game for Sri Lankan cricket. Hugely historically important game. I think the first thing to say is it was a really rubbish English summer, full of rain. And so the game was scheduled for a Saturday. In those days... We still had the kind of godly Sunday day of rest. So it gets rained off on the Saturday and moves on to the Monday. Sri Lanka do pretty well batting wise. I think the top three kind of set a platform and then Dilip Mendes comes in and smashes a punchy 64 not out to lift them up to about 240. And then India make a pretty decent start. But when I think it's Vishwanath has run out, everything starts to fall apart, wickets start falling like clockwork and they go from, I think, 120 for two to 190 all out. Tony Opatha comes in and just cuts down the tail. And it's the first time an associate's been the test nation at the World Cup and it really puts the ICC on notice. Yeah, I, I think you know how I feel about it, but I do think it changes everything because I, 
I don't think anyone expected East Africa or Canada or Sri Lanka to win games at the World Cup. I, I think they put them in there so that it wasn't five nations or six nations or seven nations. Yeah, I think you're right. It's like the epitome of making up the numbers, isn't it, Jared? <laughs> yeah, and when Sri Lanka do that, I think it's a huge thing. Obviously, Zimbabwe beat Australia in 83 as well, which doubles down on it. I think Zimbabwe helped, but that win in 79 by Sri Lanka really does change kind of everything. Before then... Getting test status was so haphazard. As I said, Canada almost got test status because they were in the right place at the right time. Argentina, probably stronger than, you know, a lot of teams, probably stronger than New Zealand, but don't get test status, right? So it's really haphazard. That World Cup thing of, oh, well, if you can beat someone at the World Cup, you're probably good enough to play in test cricket, really does help Zimbabwe, Bangladesh and Ireland all move forward. Really only perhaps Kenya, and I suppose you put Holland, are the only two that have been held back a little bit in that. So Sri Lanka really do... Not only do they change their own history, but they do change everything. And the other thing is that, you know, we've been talking about this whole time. We sit here thinking about Sri Lanka as a proper cricket nation. That wasn't the feeling in the 1970s, right? It wasn't that it was a proper cricket nation. It was that it was a small island that occasionally you went for tours to and you had a bit of fun with. It wasn't exactly thought of as this budding cricket superpower, was it? No, totally. And I think the kind of structure of the Sri Lankan scene, that it was very small and based around a few kind of Colombo clubs and Colombo schools, sort of old boys, I think that kind of encouraged that thinking that this was just a little sort of um, ragtag weekend hobby. But you're right, Jared, they really do set the path for other nations to follow. Yeah, I think you're right that that India win is the crucial moment in their kind of push for test status. When I was doing my book on the history of test cricket, the Sri Lankan bits were the most annoying because I don't think they'd <laughs> been very good books. They'd been books written by fans. I remember there was one book I was given by this Sri Lankan historian. He was really proud of it. And there was like a chapter on the squash ball incident of Adam Gilchrist. <laughs> and I was like, if that's a chapter, this I'm, I can't take this book seriously. It felt like to me for a long time that this was a big missing part of cricket. But what drove you towards writing uh, about the history of Sri Lankan cricket? I think it was a lot of different things, Jared. I should say that I was born in 1990. So my like kind of first sporting memories kick in kind of just after the 96 World Cup. And I had always kind of assumed that Sri Lanka were part of the furniture and that they'd been around playing test cricket. I don't know what I thought, but I was shocked basically when I found out they got test dates in 1981. And I think for a lot of people in the 90s and noughties, they felt like your second team. I just loved watching Jai Surya bat when I was a kid. I couldn't move my feet very well either. So seeing him kind of be planted in sand and just smack the ball to all parts was uh, inspiring and maybe a bit reassuring. Um, <laughs> and so I, I loved watching Sri Lankan cricket. I thought that they played the game in a kind of really unique way and a way that sort of seemed to express a national identity more than other cricketing nations. And then when I started looking into it, and realized how little had been written, that kind of really pushed me forward. And I mean, it seems sort of pertinent saying this now, because I know a lot of the cricketers who I've spoken to who are around in the 60s and 70s kind of feel like they've been totally written out of history. Mm. And that, I mean, that people remember Sathasivam in the 30s and then kind of fast forward straight to the 96 World Cup. And there's this kind of chasm of sort of 50, 60 years that no one ever talks about. And so, yeah, I think it was just the chance to kind of try and bring some of those stories to light combined with the 
sort of um, draw of being able to move to Sri Lanka and watch cricket all year round and live half a mile from the beach. I mean, that also sounds great. <laughs> Just because I've forgotten it and everyone listening has forgotten it. The name of your book, please. The name of the book is An Island's Eleven. Perfect. Everyone should go out and buy it. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, mate. It's an absolute pleasure and a real privilege. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. You can now download us wherever you find your apps just by putting in 99.94. There'll be other cricket podcasts not actually hosted by me, and there'll also be some radio commentary coming soon. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Makunja Banredi is in charge of our video side. Orijoti Senpati turns the files into video podcasts, and Shibanka Patacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Cricket. <laughs>